Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I am your host, Christopher Ward, along with my co-host and creator, Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom? Hey, Christopher. I found them. I found more Paul Simon clips, but I didn't really realize that Paul Simon was in the mix with these interviews with Art Garfunkel. So I was quite thrilled because we played some stuff last year, and it was good, but it wasn't great. But between both Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel in this set of interviews from really early on in their career, I think you and I have date stamped these to about 1965. We have some excellent stuff. And it is interesting how young they are. I think they're about 22, 23 during these interviews, and it's great stuff. And it's also, they do sound quite a bit younger, for sure, in these interview clips. So what else we got today, Tom? Well, first of all, Christopher, I want to welcome a brand new member to the Famous Lost Words family. It's News Talk 610 CKTB in St. Catharines joining us. They join News Talk 1010 in Toronto, CJAD 800 in Montreal, AM 800 CKLW Windsor, and 580 CFRA Ottawa. So that's very big news. Now, if you're new to the show, what we do is we play highlights from classic interviews from the past. This week, it's a little interesting. We go back 50 years for Simon and Garfunkel, as we said, and we go back five years for an interview with young Canadian singer-songwriter Alessia Cara, a really great talent who has a very bright future. Plus, we have a brand new interview with the wonderful Gino Vanelli, in which we play him a clip of himself from 40 years ago. Got it? Let's get started with Simon and Garfunkel. I love this stuff. Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon met and became friends and soon afterwards singing partners at school in Queens, New York in 1953. They were playing a folk club in New York City when Bob Dylan's producer Tom Wilson heard them and encouraged Columbia Records to sign them. Well, the road was anything but smooth. Their first album, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., bombed, and they went their separate ways. Garfunkel went back to school. Simon went to London to play on the local folk scene there. Anyway, producer Wilson liked one of the songs from their debut and thought he could make it better. So he took a song called The Sound of Silence and added a band (laughs) without telling the artists. Very funny. Artists love when you do that, yes. (laughs) Simon was reportedly horrified with the result, but it's funny how time and a number one Billboard single can mellow one's reaction, Mm -hmm. as you'll hear in the upcoming interview. Simon and Garfunkel went on over the next five years and four more studio albums to become one of the most successful and best-loved groups of their time. Their last album, Bridge Over Troubled Water, their most successful, was nominated for seven Grammys, winning six of them. This interview, I think, is from 1966, Mm -hmm. not long after their first blush of success, and you can hear two confident young men enjoying their success and ready to challenge the industry that gave it to them. The first three clips are Art Garfunkel speaking, the last four, Paul Simon. Art starts by talking about sudden success. Paul and I recorded for a couple of years and always like as a side thing. We've always carried on other interests. And suddenly the sound of silence came along. You can really hear the New York accent in these clips. And those accents (laughs) eventually disappeared. You know, when Art Garfunkel talks now, he, his accent is much more posh. It's very interesting. The only living boy in New York. (laughs) He looks back at how the duo met and the importance of failure. We got together about 10 years ago on the uh, stickball court. Well, 
that's the way the business is. You keep recording and you keep trying, and if you're fortunate enough not to keep expecting to have a hit, we're, we're very well trained in failure. We've done a lot of so-so uh, things. And uh, about two years ago, we started recording for Columbia, and it was an optimistic sort of thing, but nevertheless, I think if you don't keep expecting or waiting for it, all the pressure is off. And finally, this thing came along. Garfunkel elaborates on how a flop can turn into a triumph. Part of a folk album, that was the first thing we did for Columbia when we came there. And that was about a year and a half ago. And that album uh, was a mediocre flop. And the, <laughs> sound, the Sound of Silence was taken from that a year later, which would make that just this past September. Yeah. And a f- uh, some rhythm instruments were added onto it and it started selling. Wow, they didn't even know the song had been rearranged with rock instruments. Very funny. Paul Simon here talks about hearing the new version of Sounds of Silence for the first time. I remember when they first played it for me, they sent over a copy to England. I was living in London. And I played it and I said, oh yeah, very nice. <laughs> oh yeah, that'll be all right. And I forgot about it. And then it just became big. I, I must say, I, I always liked the song. I always thought it was one of the better songs that I had written, mm. Sounds of Silence. But I never anticipated that a song with a lyric, like the words of the prophets are written on subway walls, would ever be a number one record in the country. And the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. Tenement halls whispering. Silence. That really is one of the best lines in pop music. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement walls. halls. And didn't Rush co-opt that line for the spirit of radio? And the words of the prophets are written on the studio walls oh. and concert halls. Yeah. Yeah, they did for that. I uh, did not know that. Yes, I wonder if Paul Simon knows about it, cares, and I wonder if uh, he saw any of the royalties from that. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that represents plagiarism. Okay. It's just, yeah, it's not enough. That's what's my opinion anyway. Oh, okay. Here, Paul Simon talks about how music and music lovers have changed in recent times at the time then, uh, from Elvis to the Beatles and the Stones. The average teenager today, he's seen a lot. He's, he's been around much more than a teenager of 10 years ago. You know, I, if you remember, I, I remember I was you know, just about a teenager when Elvis Presley became big. And everybody said, oh, there'll never be anything wild in Elvis Presley. You know, like Elvis Presley was the wildest thing that ever happened. But look, he's been shadowed by, by the Beatles and the Stones, certainly. Much wilder than, than Presley. So the, the business, the industry grew and kids grew in even faster paces, I think. I think they were, they were ready for somebody to start to write songs that was reflecting the way an intelligent teenager felt. Or an intelligent young adult, I should I really like that clip because it shows Paul Simon isn't willing to kind of dumb down his lyrics to match the tastes of his audience. He knows that they're intelligent and he knows they have taste. So he's not going to change anything and he plays to that. And I think his audience in return really loved his lyrics and his music for that. Yeah, he didn't dumb it down at all. Yeah. He, he, in no way um, was he pandering to his audience. I think he uplifted them with the, you know, just the pure craft of his work. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Here he reveals what he writes about. I write them out of my personal hang-ups. These are problems that, you know, that, that, that bug me. 
and so I try and try and express them uh, almost so that I can get them off my chest m even more than the fact that I want to say it to you, for example. Because mm. I don't know that you feel the same way as I do, and I have no way of knowing what you feel. So all I can write is how I see a situation and in that way relieve the tension that I feel about the situation in part, you see. Uh, and hopefully that the things that I feel will be universalities. More, more than just what Paul Simon thinks, but what what a lot of people think. Uh, I think the sounds of silence was like that. I would hope that Homeward Bound will be in the same category. I write my songs out of my personal hang-ups. And somebody please answer that phone. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> in our last clip, Tom, Paul talks about what happens when a good song meets a groovy beat. The sales of singles records has been confined to uh, a certain age group from about the age of 11 to about the age of 15 and when you have and the artists you'll notice are continually now older than this age group mm. and the artists are usually in the 20s I'm 22 arts 22 Dylan is 25 John Lennon is 25 uh, and these people who are creating and writing are reflecting thoughts of a, an older age group, and I think that's making more, more record buyers. I think it's expanding the market mm -hmm. for records, and I, th therefore I think that folk rock is a very is a very good thing. I think we're appeal appealing to more to more people, to a wider audience now, and I, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, in taking a good song, a lyrically good song and putting a groovy beat behind it. I think it's a good combination. Okay, Christopher, he used the word groovy <laughs> right at the very end yeah, of that baby. clip. Yeah, I knew you were going to do <laughs> that. You're right, man. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. And it's so interesting to hear him talk <laughs> about his peers and that, all of whom are in their 20s, like Dylan. That's so great. Okay, Christopher, before we leave our conversation about Simon and Garfunkel, I know that your engineer down there in L.A., Tim, really loves yes. a version of The Sound of Silence by a band called Disturbed. Let's have a listen to just a moment of that. Holy smoke. Okay, there you go. The sounds of silence. And of course, you can't forget the Bangles did A Hazy Shade of Winter, right? And that was a really good version, too. I was at a birthday party, and Susanna did a parody of that song. <laughs> she did a parody of her own cover. Yes, a parody of Hazy Shade of Winter. It, it was obscene, though, so I can't oh, tell you what it was really? called. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So Susanna Hobbs from the Bangles <laughs> is at a party, and she does yeah. an obscene cover version of Simon and Garfunkel's Hazy, Hazy Shade, Shade of Winter, and I'm not even going <laughs> to yes. guess what that was called. Okay, good. <laughs> Very good. 
This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. Normally on our show, we go back a decade to even a half a century in some cases, like with Simon and Garfunkel. But right now, we're going to go back just five years with a conversation with Alessia Cara from Brampton, Ontario. She is a rising star, and she has done some great work. Here she is in conversation from 2014 with Ashley Greco. So much has happened to you in, yes. in four months. I know. It's like unbelievable. A lot has happened, yes. So we're so happy happy that you came back because we, we have so much to talk about. Um, I want to start off, though, with Here, which is the first single from the album, Know It All. Uh, and I read that it has turned into one of the best things that has ever happened to you in your life. Yeah, of course. It definitely has. I think it's without it, like, I would not be here. I wouldn't be traveling the world. I wouldn't have done all these amazing things. It's because it was off of one song. My album's not even out yet. You it's know? not even out. And it's just crazy. I'm just grateful for what happened. Shortly after we spoke, um, I was I was watching TV late at night, and I see you on The Tonight Show. Yeah. So this was like your first kind of television debut in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, with, with Jimmy Fallon, which is incredible. Mm. Uh, what was that moment like? Were you nervous? You must have been going out there. Of course. Of course. I was nervous like five days before even. Yeah. I was already getting like the butterflies like a week before and then during and then after. And I always get like that. But like that's, I love that show. And that was the first time, you know, so it was. It was crazy. It was unreal. Yeah. One of the things I love so much about Ellen DeGeneres is that she doesn't really have, uh, I mean, I'm sure she does. She has a team of people who book her guests. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I love so much about her is that she has a lot of say in who she brings on to her show. Yeah. And and that was the case with you. So you were also on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And and, and shortly before she introduced you, she just talked about how much she loved you you did she give you like a pep talk before you went on the show yes she did because i was telling her how nervous i was because of course i was so nervous yeah she was like don't be nervous she's saying all these amazing things you're brilliant and i think you're this and that and it was so amazing to hear that from her because like i love her I'm just, yeah I'm just fangirl i was gonna say you must have been like a huge fan before of course yeah i told her like i, I literally i used to listen to her stand-up like I would, I downloaded her stand-up comedy um, on my iPod, and the I would best. listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the best. Yeah. She's awesome. It really is. And then I'm, I'm home on. Uh, well, I, I don't have much of a life, but I'm home on Halloween night, and I, <laughs> I see a tweet from uh, Taylor Swift, and and you're out in Tampa Bay, Florida, as one of her guests for the 1989 tour. Yes. Oh my gosh. Hello. Does yeah. that make you part of Taylor Swift's squad? By the way, I was kind of curious <laughs> when she brings special guests onto the tour. I don't. Th- I don't think so. She never asked me, so I don't. I don't know. Does I don't have, even know who's really up, like who's fully a part of the squad. But I don't have a squad. Yeah, and, and the love uh, between you and Taylor has been going on for quite some time. Oh yes, I, we have a, a love affair. Yeah, She's like amazing. A couple <laughs> really of tweets back and forth between the two of you. Yeah, she just like keeps showing me all the support and love online, and it's amazing. It's just been so great, and it's awesome. She's just so cool. Is she someone that you really look up to in this industry? Of course. I think she should be someone that a lot of people look up to. And I think, you know, I always thought that. But now that I've met her and I've seen how she is just with her crew and with uh, with me, like someone that she's never met and the way she embraced my family and my friends, like that's just such a, you know, she just proved that you don't have to be mean. You know, no matter how big you are, you don't ever have to be arrogant or, or mean. You can just still be just as nice as you were before. And she's so sweet. So, And I love that she loves other artists and she appreciates what our other artists are doing instead of kind of being catty about it. Yeah, exactly. You don't need that in the industry, right? Exactly. She's awesome. I, I love here. Uh, I, I told you that last time when you were here. Um, <laughs> and But my favorite song on the album has to be 17. 
Really? Love well, Seventeen. Thank you. Because like here, it's a song that I think we can relate to. Uh, mm-hmm. The song is about when you're young, you wish you were old, and when you were old, when you finally get to an, an older age, you kind of wish that you were young again. Yeah. Um, is there something about um, your, your now 19, but something from your past that you miss so much? Um, yeah, I think a whole chunk of it, all of it. You know, I think it's always nice to to be at an age where everything is just so innocent and you're so you know not i guess oblivious is kind of like a negative connotation to use but i guess when you're just so like innocent and you're always happy when you're younger and you have like you your brain is full of dreams and you're aspiring to do all these things and then i feel like as we get older that stuff kind of gets a little tainted and it's not the same um and yeah I, i just miss being a kid and i miss like just like not worrying about stuff what is your favorite song on the album uh that's hard that's re- it always changes, but I, I really like Wild Things right now. Okay. I think I always like Wild Things because I love the message. And what is the message? The message is like self-acceptance. It's like an anthem for people who feel weird or feel out of place or just feel like they might not like themselves too much. It's just basically saying, like, we don't care what anyone says. We're going to just, like, I- I'm tired of, like, you know, conforming to people's rules. I just want to love myself. And I think anyone can relate to that, whether you're young or old or whatever. Leave us alone because we don't need your I'm not sure if people realize this now, but um, just based on this album, I can tell you are going to be a huge role model for a lot of young girls oh, because you. there's a lot of very powerful uh, messages within this album. Something that my uh, music director pointed out to me yesterday, and I found this fascinating, was that in the U.S. radio airplay charts right now, there are five Canadian artists in the top ten. Really? Five. That's awesome. Sean Mendez. Awesome. From Pickering. Uh, yeah. Justin Bieber. Awesome. The Weeknd from Toronto. Drake from Toronto and Alessia Cara. That's so cool. That's awesome. It's so weird that my name is like with those people because I'm fans of all of them. And like the, so only, awesome. the only female, by the way, in that in that group of people. <laughs> you know. I just want to point that out. I know. You know. Whatever. That's awesome. I'm glad to. I'm glad to represent the the Brampton females. Do you know who our city is? Our city and Adam Levine yes, do, do a know. track called Locked Away. Yes, so I we do. had them in the studio not too long ago. And they pointed out how much Canadian talent is really blowing up right now. And I want I want you to listen to this. I personally feel there's something in the water here <laughs> because you guys make some of the most talented people living on planet Earth. You guys are amazing. We recommend people coming to Toronto and having a glass of the water here because <laughs> I had a glass of the water today. I, uh, I already feel like a different person. <laughs> Oh, so that's the, awesome. The, the world is totally taking note of the amazing talent that's, that's coming so cool. out of Toronto. What, I love that. What do you think it is, though, about about uh, artists from from Canada right now and why they're doing so well? You know, I, I don't. I think maybe a part of it is I think because we're such a multicultural like group of people. I think there's different cultures, different influences, and and you know when you take pieces of each thing, you get like something unique and different. And also, I feel like. We've been the underdogs for a while. Yeah, we have. And underdogs always come out on top. So I'm so glad that, you know, there's five of us. We can rep for the rest of us. That's Alessia Cara in conversation with Ashley Greco from five years ago. Alessia's career has continued unabated since then. She won the Grammy for Best New Artist. She was up for Song of the Year. And I appreciate her for more than just her music. She has this odd fashion style. It's almost an anti-fashion sense with oversized suit jackets and pants in stark contrast to many other performers these days lyrically and image wise she stands out for all the right reasons when i think about those nights in montreal 
great song, Gino Vanelli from 1978, I Just Want to Stop. And he's thinking about those nights in Montreal. That's where he's from. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. And right now, he's in the studio with me. The purpose of this show is where we dig up old interviews from our archives, and our archives go way back even to the late 50s. Now, we're not going back quite that far right now. I would hope not. No, we're going back, I would say, probably 41 or 42 years. Hmm, that's painful. And, that's painful enough. <laughs> and the funny thing is, Ross, I, I wasn't expecting to see you today, but I'm thrilled because this clip involved you and your brother Joe and Gino, of course. And so this is Gino just talking about 1977-78 about working with his brothers. I think we all understand each other's expectations out of not only music but life, number one. Good point. And then I think we all understand uh, each other's capabilities and and limitations. You know, I know that Ross is a far superior artist than just writing one hit song and say doing sound for me. So in his knowing that I know that his capabilities are far beyond that, you know, it gives him a good feeling to know that I I understand him as a person. Not that I'm, like I don't walk around saying, Ross, you're just going to do sound, and you're just going to do that, and I don't want to hear anything else from you. It's like we're always talking about his career, we're talking about his music, how we could help, and certain songs, and it's like, it's always a team effort. Same thing with Joe, and them, same with me. So like, you're the front man. Ross acts like the engineer and gets his best thing, and I'm, I'm the front man. I, I do my part. So it's, it just, we look at our parts equally, but I think they come out looking a little different once, to people who just look at it for face value, figure that, um, I wonder how Gino's brothers, you know, feel about Gino being in front, you know, taking the limelight. Yeah. We don't look at it that way because everyone we feel is in the limelight. Okay. First of all, what's it like to hear your voice from all those years ago? Sounds like I would have voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of socialism there? Is that what you're getting at? Well, you know, at the heart of what I, I was saying... Um, uh, it, the heart of it is, is actually true, and of course, but you, at that age, I mean, I'm 25 or 26 years old, we're, and we're all, my brothers, Ross 21, Joe's 26, 27, we're, we're all in the developmental stage. We're, we're trying to find ourselves. So in, in order for, us, for it to work, everybody has to really respect each other. Right. And re- respect each other's skills, capabilities, and minds, and, and, and mindsets. So that's, I think that was sort of um, a semi-eloquent way of being nice to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ross, what did you think of hearing that? Wow. I don't think that was Gino. (laughs) 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 You sounded like a munchkin. (laughs) (laughs) I've already, you know, always respected both my brothers. Gino, in my eyes, you know, was always a star, even when he was a kid even when he was 12 or 13 years old. So I always had this respect for him. And he's got a way of, of doing things that takes everything to another level. And he expects that from everybody. Right. So he makes you better. He made me better. Right. And, uh, you know, look, I really like being with Gino. I respect him, and I love what he does. I love his music. I love his writing. And uh, if I didn't, I wouldn't be here. So tell me what it was like growing up um, together, but also just growing up in Montreal in those days, 
you know, what was what was it like in Montreal? But what was it like in your family musically? What what happened there? Because something did. Messy. All three of you. Messy. Yeah? <laughs> it's always messy. You know, uh, there's there's every family. You know, I mean, chaos is part of life. Yeah. You know, and we're always trying to make sense of chaos. So a family's no different. I mean, everyone's pulling their own way, and yet we come together in, in a strange kind of involuntary way because we all have the same thing in mind. We want to make great music. So even when we're in bands together, Joe's playing keyboard, Ross is playing bass, mm-hmm. I'm playing drums and singing in the beginning. Uh, you know, a lot of arguments, oh, we should do this chord. No, that's the wrong <laughs> chord, or, or we should do it this tempo. And there's all this back-and-forth bickering, and if there isn't that, you have nothing that's going to happen. Right. So uh, to to accept uh, the fact that uh, there's a bit of a chaos theory in, in a family in general, but for sure in a group of people that are working together. Right. What music, um, what was it that made you decide that you wanted to be doing this? What you know was there a, was there a Beatles moment? Was there you know another band or another artist? I know that jazz was a big influence on you guys. What, was there a moment that you went, "I got to do this," or was there a moment where you wrote poetry and said, "Oh, I can do this"? When I was three or four or five years old, I was always singing and imitating artists that I would see on TV. So it, it always felt like. Um, if I was going to do music, if I was going to be a musician, it just felt as normal as someday I'm going to talk if I'm one year old. Right. And so someday I'm going to sing. Someday I'm going to make music. Then it, it just it was a question of choosing the road. In the beginning, the road was drums. When I saw Gene Krupa, that was a bit of an mm. aha moment. When I was seven or eight years old, I saw him playing with Harry James and him doing all those solos against those calfskins, and I loved the way those calfskin drums sound. And then, of course, you know, my dad... Um, had a great taste in music, so when he'd bring home albums, whether whether it be you know Sinatra records or um, or big band records or a Miles record or anything like that, those were high watermark. As we as we know, pretty much everything on the internet is one hundred percent true, right? Isn't that what we've discovered? <laughs> <laughs> so I hear this story and I go, wait a minute, is this true? This sounds like fiction to me, and it's a story that goes to the early seventies. And you and Joe basically ambush Herb Albert to get um, a record contract. Is that true? The, the, the true true story of yeah. it is, is is that we ran out of money. I mean, that's we were in, in Los Angeles for about three and a half, four months. We knocked on every every possible door, and uh, every door was basically slammed in our face. And we literally had five dollars left, and was we were staying at a place called the Motel Orange. And it, Sounds classy. It, very classy. <laughs> yes, yes, especially. I mean, it it, it, it was bad, let me tell yeah. you. So Joe says, we got to leave. Uh, it's day before New Year's Eve, and I said, I, I don't think I want to leave because I, I had lived in New York for a year and a half, yeah. almost got a record deal, and now I'd been in L.A. for almost four months, and there's just there was no way I was going to leave without a record deal. And um, so I, I wake up early in the morning, um, and I'm telling this story exactly how it okay. happened. <laughs> I, I walked along Sunset Boulevard for a couple minutes, and uh, early in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, and um, I stopped into a church, and uh, I needed time to just reflect and not hear the sound of, of beeping horns. And so the church was awfully quiet, and I hadn't been in a church for 20 years. It, it felt also strangely, mysteriously familiar to me. And so I just sat down in the pews, and I fell asleep. 
And uh, three or four hours later, it seemed to me that I knew exactly what to do. And there we were. I, I went to get my brother, and we, we stayed outside the, the gates of uh, Charlie Chaplin's studio, which was uh, A&M Records at the time. And for, for those who don't know, A&M Records, that, if you wanted to be uh, signed to an independent label who made the greatest music on the planet, A&M was the place to mm-hmm. be. Because, I mean, A&M had... Cat Stevens, Joe Carker, Quincy Jones. I mean, later on, the police, Carol King at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Joni Mitchell, Peter Frampton, Peter Frampton, Peter Frampton mm-hmm. and Super Tramp were there. Right. I mean, I, I mean, great artist after great artist. So uh, I stood outside the gates of A and M for a couple of hours, three hours, until the guard came down from his tower and um, warned me not to, you know, crash the gates. And I said, Oh no, I'm, I'll never crash the gates. And that's when I saw Herb uh, get out of his office, walk through the parking lot, dropped my guitar, and I ran through the gates. <laughs> yeah. He, he started... Cha- I mean, he, he, he unholstered his gun, and he started chasing me. Because, I mean, he didn't know who I was. Right. A month before that, uh, Lonnie Hall, uh, Herb's wife, right. was nearly kidnapped. She was thrown into a car and managed to escape. So they probably thought this was round two. I don't know. I, I, I did have that sort of look to myself, you know, in those days. <laughs> Who's this hirsute fellow? <laughs> yes, I know. All but for the crucifix on my chest, you know. <laughs> but the maybe hair, and the hair out. The uh, yeah. yeah, I know. Yes, and you can never see my shoulders. <laughs> and um, so I, I did make it to Herb. And um, as I made it to Herb and accosted him, grabbed his shoulder, he turned, uh, went a little pale on me. And then when that happened, Johnny the guard... I later found out his name was Johnny, pulled me away from Herb to make sure I wasn't going to hurt him and started pulling me out, out of the lot. And I just turned around and Herb, I gave him that look and Herb just saw. I mean, this is the unspoken word. It, it's almost, we know when people look at each other and they mm-hmm. know each other. Mm-hmm. And Herb looked at me, I looked at him, it's like we knew each other. Wow. And, and he said, hold on, Johnny. And, I, and he summoned me and he said, what do you want? I said, let me play for you. Just let me play for you. What song? And he said, come back in 30 minutes. And okay. I, I played um, Crazy Life, Mama Coco, People Gotta Move, um, a couple of the songs I can't remember, but at least three or four songs. Yeah. And all the while I was playing, I mean, I thought I was bombing because he had his head, his forehead on the table, listening uh, with his head down. He just lifted his head and said, welcome to the family. <gasps> I just got goosebumps. That is a great story. So just you on your guitar. Yeah. You're not playing him a tape. No, no, you no. You are no. playing for him. No, I took my guitar and, <gasps> people, come on, and just start playing that. And he went, all right. That's amazing. Because your music is so diverse, the funky soul of People Gotta Move, the big ballads like I Just Want to Stop, um, the glittery pop of Black Cars and Wild Horses. I love Wild Horses, man. I love the sound of that. People Gotta Move. I love all of them. But um, uh, So that music has always been really unique and you seem to be kind of constantly reinventing yourself um, but it's still the Gino Vanelli sound and I speak even of this current album called Wilderness Road by the way um, so how do you do that how do you pull that off by kind of reinventing yourself but still sounding like you it's a very good question and it ends up being um, almost a spiritual question the art of writing poetry is digging digging deeply into your you know, subconscious or, or your, your, your psychology or others' uh, psychology and trying to find or get at the truth in, in a way that's palatable. So one day I'm, I'm walking uh, uh, down the road back from school 
and and an old man is tilling his garden. And it's it's May in Montreal, and May in Montreal is a wondrous time. And so I, I was looking at him tilling his garden, and already there was this rose that was almost in full bloom. It was late May, and uh, I said, "Well, that's it. That that really is. If if a man could come to full bloom, I look at at music as a process of growth, of course, a process of entertaining myself and others." Mm-hmm process of having fun, but a process of hard work and struggle to reach full bloom. You're, you, you know, you're a very uh, reflective person, and you're digging deep as an artist to achieve these truths that you're talking about. And you can hear that, you know, like from the uh, opening line of I Just Want to Stop, when I think about those nights in, in Montreal, I get the sweetest thoughts of you and me, and those, like, you know, it's so beautiful. And the big ballads of ballads of the seventies then weren't really my thing when I when I was of that age when those songs came out. I like them, but when I listen to them now, man, they sound so deep and so powerful. And it's a testament to the writing and the production and your vocals. And man, you really it really came across, and that's really uh, quite something. So thank you. So I want to go back at some point in the seventies. You became known for the big ballads. And I wonder if that was a little bit unfair and if it hampered you a little bit because knowing what we know about your body of work in hindsight, you weren't just the big ballad guy, right? And so did that hamper that reputation that you had? Did that hamper your career around that time before things changed up with black cars? No, maybe a a little bit to some people's eyes, but after... Uh, I just want to stop and living inside myself from from the Nightwalker album. You know, we're pretty big hits. Um, my brothers and I wanted to do something different, and and uh, it was a new a new era, you know, the era of MTV. Yeah, and and uh, people were changing their minds about music, and people were listening in different ways. So we said, let's think about something that we would not normally do. Well, what we would not normally do is we usually would hire a band or have hire musicians and record old school. Let's try recording new school. And this is my first, in fact, all the brothers, our first foray into uh, computerized technology, mm-hmm. into understanding really um, the burgeoning new school thought. Mm-hmm. So Black Cars was recorded step by step with like, you know, a little bit of computer, a little bit of sequence, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, adding this sound, adding that sound, all, all the while as sort of like we're sort of directors. And we could hear in our, our minds, we're just trying to realize it, mm-hmm. to, you know, put some flesh on, on, on that bone. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very grateful for it because from that moment on, from 1983, 84 on, my brothers and I became very, very, very comfortable with, with new school recording. Let's play a moment of uh, of the new album, uh, Wilderness Road. And I was just blown away by the very first song. It's called Ghost Train. So let's have a listen to that to indicate how something can sound so new and so classic at the same time. Ghost Train, Gino Vanell. Yeah, the train whistle blow, rolling down the line. I come to rescue this heart of mine. You rumble and roar of the moonlight express. A there you go. Like that sounds really modern, and yet um, it sounds like you. Like I said, it sounds like classic Gino Vanelli, but it's got a real soul to it. 
too. And, and I just love that. I want to just kind of jump backwards uh, a few decades now. So with your reemergence in the mid to late 80s, a lot of the music of the 80s sounds kind of um, sounds kind of cheap sometimes, right? It doesn't <laughs> hold up. The thing is, is that black cars and wild horses and persona non grata and a mm. lot of those other songs they actually hold up pretty well they were so well produced so persona non grata is a good record yeah it's a yeah. good video too yeah mm. uh hurts to be in love man i love that song that just Very popped good. in my head just the beginning and yep. of course the your your delivery on that vocal is so uh, uh is so beautiful were you relieved or were you, maybe you don't think of your your career in these terms but when i heard you in the 80s i went Oh my God, he's back! Like I know, in probably in in your world, mm-hmm. you'd never been away, but for someone who worked in radio, like Gino's back, and it sounds current. He's not looking back to the '70s anymore. He is in the '80s, and this does sound good, and it does work. Was that a relief to you, or do you not think of it that way? Well, as part of what I was saying earlier, you know, the spiritual progress for an artist is 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 to grow, you know, and and of course. Um, you have to be aware of the fact that you have to play for people or you're going to sing in the shower all your life. <laughs> so, so you've got your, your one ear or one eye on the marketplace and you say, well, that's what other people are doing. So, okay, if I, if I can do my thing and I think it could be maybe acceptable here. So remember, the 80s was a, a real venture into a mainstream pop for me. Mm-hmm. But still with the mainstream pop, I would not record a song until it had at least an opening line. You said about Montreal, mm-hmm. the line. And when I think about those nights in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Well, or and, when the sun comes up in a sleepy little town. Well, right? or <laughs> a song like when I said, more and more your kiss is like a half-open door. That's hers to be in love. Yes, more and more. Oh, man. Okay, so what great, I'm saying great. is that when there's an opening line, I go, yes, I, I can chew on this you know, before yeah. I swallow it. Yeah. And, and that to me was always... When the sun goes down on the Arizona plane and the mm-hmm. train and the wh- train whistles by and and the wind whistles by like a runaway train, hey, right. it's a beautiful. Those are the thing. lyrics, not what I said. <laughs> hey, exactly, and I'm saying that when I have that to sing to, or under the cover of night, she crawls into sight. Right, black cars. Yeah, it's a very yeah. interesting you yeah. know, thing. And, and and you know, black cars is really not about a car at all. Right. You know, it's about this woman that walks up and down. Sunset Boulevard and, and a black fur and a kerchief and with dark sunglasses that's got yarrow root makeup on her wrinkles and has missed the boat in life. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's a very, very, I'd say sympathetic, but maybe pathetic sight. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And um, she, and this is a true story, she keeps to the shady side of the street. So when I went back home and I started waxing my black Z28, I noticed that the shady side of the car always looks better than the sunny side, especially with wow. a black car. And that's why its black cars look better in the shade. So you extra- extrapolate that to a person who you see who presents perhaps a bit of a brave figure for being out there and trying to present herself, and yet you can tell that the you can see the cracks, you can see the wrinkles, she's just, you can see the creases. She's just a hyperbolic sense of ourselves. Yeah. She, oh. she's. Everyone fears that. Everyone fears mm. aging. Everyone fears fears not looking presentable. And everybody wants to look their best. It's just that she, somewhere along the line, she lost her logic mm. and her emotions took over. Right. And, and she never came to came to a position with herself and said, "You know what? <laughs> I got to drop this." Yeah. <laughs> and that speaks a lot, boy. That's 1984. We are now 35 years later. Mm-hmm. And you talk about putting up a false front. 
for yeah, yourself. That's exactly you talk a about false social front. media, right? Yeah, it's a, it's all very much of it uh, is a false front about whether you're, um, you know, you're fixing your pictures so that you're presenting yourself in a way that you really don't. It's true. Doesn't doesn't exist. It's true. Yeah, or uh, touch or. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gino, it's a real thrill to meet you and talk to you. Um, I saw you in concert, I would say, I would say about 30 years ago. It was down at the old Ontario Place Forum. And one of the things I noticed is how much you got into your own music by the way you moved to it. It was really interesting to see an artist like yourself connect so deeply with it. But now, having spoken to you, it's obvious why you do that because you do connect and you these these songs have great meaning to you and they're not just simple three-minute pop records they're a slice of your of your life and your artistry and i really appreciate uh you coming in you ross coming in what a thrill it's been to meet you guys and i hope you uh enjoyed uh speaking to us on famous lost words yes it's been a pleasure tom thank you thanks That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. See you next time. Okay, time now for a little bit of bonus content because you are listening to the podcast version of this. So I turned off the mics after the Gino Vanelli interview uh, had finished, and Gino and his brother kept talking. And... What happened is I realized he was telling me a great story about Herb Alpert and some advice that he gave him. So I just turned on the mics and we restarted again. So have a listen as I continue my conversation with Gino Vanelli. Sorry, what did Herb Alpert tell you a long time ago? Uh, Herb told me, he said, when you're writing a song, he says, if you don't create a picture in someone's head, a clear picture, he says, you're failing. Mm -hmm. So I really kept that in mind. You know... uh, now the cry of the toucan for you, man, is history. Cry of the toucan for you, man, is history. Okay, so that's 80s. Persona non grata. There you go. <laughs> what I'm, I always kept that in mind. Yeah. And so when I was writing a lyric, I always said, I've got to put it somewhere. It's yeah. got to be somewhere. It's got to come from a certain place. I want to circumscribe a picture. Sure. I want to sculpt something. Yeah. And And that to me is something that if I were to lay on a student or new writers... Think of it that way. Think of yourself as a sound painter. But one thing I want to say about that is that lyrically, those songs, you know, as we've discussed, those songs are are really deep, and they are they cover a lot of ground and they cover a lot of emotion. But you know, those songs also sounded incredibly cool, right? Sonically, production-wise, like nothing, nothing sounds like people got to move. Nothing. It's true, and, and that was an accident. That was, I mean, a happy accident, but I mean, uh, I had a group, um, Richard Baker was a left-handed, uh, um, he played left-hand bass, much like the guy from The Doors, and great organist. Right. John Mandel, percussion, Graham Lear, great drummer, uh, my brother Joe on the keyboard, and that was the group. And we had people got to move, going, and it was, it was kind of, it was grooving, but 
there's something missing to it. Right. And one day, Joe comes downstairs. My my father had uh, an apartment house where we lived. Well, it was a house, but like three or four apartments in it. So he let us rehearse down in the downstairs apartment. Joe comes in with a, a little synthesizer he borrowed called uh, a, a, a mini cork. A mini cork, yeah. It's a little itty bitty thing, but that little sucker had some sounds in it yeah. that had a trumpet sound, it had a violin sound, and it had a bass sound that was this And I said, Joe, I said, that would be really amazing if we yeah. doubled the bass with that. And then Joe says, Yeah, not only that. He says, Richard's going wah, woo, whap, whap, you know, on his organ. Oh, that's great. But I he love says, that. Suppose, this was Joe's idea. Suppose, now remember, this is a mono synthesizer, only one note at a time, <laughs> so you cannot play a chord on it. So Joe says, how about we overdub one note at a time and create a brass section? And that's how People Gotta Move was born. Right. I'll take that one step further. When we did Just the Gemini in England, uh, Jeff Emmerich, rest his soul. Uh, Beatles? Yeah. Uh -huh. Wow. Okay. The best of the Beatles. Yeah. And he, uh, Jeff was a great guy, by the way. He's a wonderful guy. Innovator. Yeah, truly was. A good human being. Um, but back to the point, he synced two 24-track machines together. One machine was basically just... Synths. Synthesizers <laughs> to create a string section. <laughs> One note at a time, yeah. 24 tracks. And you have to. That's why it doesn't sound cheap, because you guys cared, Right. Boy, Absolutely. a song like that Absolutely. can sound really dated, and it just sounds amazing. But you know, amazing. there's a trick to doing it, because you see, not only do you play one note at a time, but Joe and I figured, you know, in a horn section, no two trumpet players play really alike or have the same horn. Right. So we would tweak each note, different vibrato, different sound, Tunings. different tuning, different attack. And so that's why when you hear people got to move. Now that's 1973 we right. recorded. Yeah. Now how, how far is that? Is that's that 45? 46 years ago. 46 years ago. Someone played it as that's still a good sound. I yeah. would use that sound today. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's great. And also, like you think about Wild Horses, uh, nineteen eighty-seven, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And that song, Fretless Bass, was that that was Jimmy Haslip. Yeah. Jimmy Haslip did all the soloing on Brother to Brother, so he he came in one day and we said, look, we got to get a Jocko sound. So Jimmy came in with. A, and I said, that's it. Sure. That's the line. But, but even the shuffle, the beginning, it sounded so new, and yet it was like a it was like a rockabilly song. Well, that's that's, that's David Garibaldi yeah. from Tower of Power. Wow. He, I said I said to him, just I want a snare and a kick. That's it. Maybe a hi-hat. Maybe. And he just said, What do you want? I said, You you gotta give me a country rhythm, but a funky country country yeah. rhythm. So it's yeah. <laughs> and that's why it sounds the way it does. That's a great song. Thank you very much, guys, for Thank you, Tom. Us. Thanks so much.